Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're pleased to have Catherine Bodie, Senior Policy Counsel at the New York Civil Liberties Union. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for being here, Catherine. Uh, I know that you specialize in gender equality and reproductive rights issues, and we're going to talk a little bit about those today. Uh, obviously, uh, very relevant to some cases that are making their way through the court system. But let me start by asking you this. We, you know, Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, 46 years ago, providing a fundamental right to privacy under the 14th Amendment that protects a woman's right to choose. It was affirmed again in 1992 by, in the case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, why is this still an issue that's before the courts? So I think it's important to emphasize that this is certainly uh, not something that is new um, since Roe uh, since the the Supreme Court came out with the Roe decision, uh, we have seen um, countless legislative efforts to roll back those rights. Um, but I think that we're in a moment right now where abortion opponents are particularly emboldened. Uh, they have a president that has prioritized their objectives and a court that they believe is ideologically aligned with them. Uh, and all factors, uh, all factors uh, support that. Um, so we're seeing states like Kentucky, Mississippi, Ohio, Georgia passing uh, what's known as heartbeat bills, which uh, ban abortions after a fetal heartbeat can be detected, um, often before a person even knows that they are pregnant. Um, and and those are being challenged uh, in March. A federal judge blocked the Kentucky law uh, in Ohio. Um, the ACLU, along with Planned Parenthood, has, has filed suit against that law. Uh, and in Georgia, the ACLU is preparing legal challenge. Um, but we're also seeing these uh, straight bans. Um, notably, Alabama passed a ban several weeks ago. And the the mission of opponents has been transparent there. Uh, their wish is to um, directly challenge uh, the the holding in in Roe v. Wade. Um, and the the ACLU and Planned Parenthood challenged that law on Friday. Um, also, uh, late last week, we saw Missouri pass an eight week ban, and, and that that will be. Challenged as well, but as I said, these uh, this approach is is certainly not new. Um, since 2011, states have passed more than 400 restrictions that are designed to block people from obtaining abortions and shut down abortion clinics across the country. Let me ask you this, because you know it's been it's been established by the Supreme Court that uh, states may not prohibit abortions prior to fetal viability outside the womb, which is generally around 24 weeks. That's uh, generally understood. So how is it that these uh, fetal heartbeat, heartbeat uh, regulations that 
come into play around six weeks, how do they even have any uh, uh, ability to to have that case not fly in the face of Supreme Court precedent? Is there any uh, is there any wiggle room there for any of uh, any of this legislation? Um. So, uh, since Roe, there have largely been two strategies by abortion opponents. And um, during uh, Justice Alito's, now Justice Alito's, confirmation hearings, um, there was a a memo uh, that was leaked that he wrote in 1985 that I think captured these two strategies really well. The first is an outright frontal assault on Roe to overturn Roe. And the second strategy is aimed at chipping away at that right to essentially make the right to abortion meaningless. It is, uh, you know, a death by a thousand cuts, which avoids the political backlash of directly overturning Roe, uh, but essentially has the same result to make abortion inaccessible. Uh, I, I think that, um, I think that uh, abortion opponents are seeing a moment uh, where they are pushing forward with more aggressive strategies, uh, and that is at the heart of what we're seeing uh, when it comes to these bans. Well, you know, with the with the current makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court, um, there's some uh, that believe that we have. Uh, you know, a chief justice who is very much uh, an institutionalist, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who might not want to uh, see uh, a frontal assault on Roe v. Wade. Uh, He certainly has a great uh, respect for precedent. And so there might be a greater opportunity for, uh, as you said, this death by a thousand cuts by uh, chipping away at uh, at some of these uh, some of the regu- with some of the regulations, and we saw that in a case that just recently came down uh, from Indiana, the Box v. Planned Parenthood case. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the two issues that were involved in that case, and what that might portend for future cases. Sure. So the the Supreme Court this week uh, rejected an appeal by Indiana to to save a law that would have criminalized abortion for certain reasons. But the ruling was mixed. It uh, also upheld a provision of the law that would require providers to dispose of fetal remains through cremation and burial. And these type of requirements, as I referenced earlier, are meant to drive up the costs for abortion clinics and in turn for patients seeking abortion care, ultimately making it more difficult to access care. So by upholding that piece, the court let uh, another unwarranted restriction on abortion stand. And while the ruling is limited, uh, this is part of uh, the larger trend of states state laws uh, that are designed to uh, stigmatize abortion and and really drive abortion care out of reach. And that's a good example of the direction the court is signaling. Uh, The court knows that overruling Roe outright would 
put the court's integrity at question. It just reaffirmed the right three years ago in the, the whole women's health case, uh, with the only thing changing being the composition of the court. So as you referenced, uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, would certainly hesitate to uh, politicize the court's role in that way. It would also have consequences at the ballot box as well. Uh, recent polling shows uh, yet again that the majority of Americans support Roe and that overturning the decision uh, would would uh, would certainly um, anger people and bring people out in droves uh, to the ballot box uh, against uh, conservative forces and uh, and the Republican Party. But the fact is that we don't need to see Roe overturned to have and put totally out of reach, um, and that's the the incremental um, the incremental chipping away uh that i referenced earlier right and so and let's talk about that a little bit because there was a second part of the of that uh indiana case which talked about the reasons why uh someone uh a woman might want to uh have an abortion and that uh that legislation limited that and said that if it was for race sex or disability that it would be limited um, and the court didn't really just kind of deferred on that, did not, um, said that the Seventh Circuit uh, decision was not in conflict with any other uh, circuit, and until such time, they're not going to make a decision uh, on it. But that raises, uh, you know, several important issues, uh, one of which is whether um, that type of regulation would uh you know, fly in the face of, uh, you know, the precedent of Roe and Casey, the Seventh Circuit said that it would and held that it was unconstitutional. Um, tell us a little bit about whether you see any other circuits possibly uh, addressing this issue that might give rise to this, uh, this issue coming back to the Supreme Court? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, just to expand on what you're saying, Roe v. Wade stands for the principle that people have a fundamental right to abortion throughout pregnancy when a fetus is not viable or when a person's health or life is at risk. So a uh, reason-based ban would fly in the base in the in the face of that. Um, there are uh, other circuits that are um, that are addressing. The issue, um, certainly given the just enormous amount of uh, regulations and restrictions that have passed uh, recently. Um, in particular, uh, the, the Fifth Circuit um, uh, entertained a Louisiana law that was a law that required admitting privileges for abortion, uh, abortion providers. Um, that was an identical, essentially identical requirement that was challenged in the whole women's health case several years ago and was struck down by the Supreme Court as an undue burden on um, the right to access abortion. When we, um, when we talk about the reason-based ban that was at issue in, in Indiana, it seems like that would be something that would be just terribly difficult 
to uh, enforce, uh, to get into the mind of the woman that is seeking an abortion. And it also seems somewhat contradictory because if you were to say, I, I just, I'm getting an abortion for no reason, uh, that would be permissible under the law, but if you were getting it for, uh, you know, several reasons that some feel are actually perfectly appropriate, um, then that would be illegal. So is it is it that this legislation was somewhat more symbolic and not actually going to have much of an impact because it's so difficult to enforce? Well, I, I certainly think that that is part of it. Oftentimes... These laws are meant to stigmatize abortion and the people who seek abortion. Um, abortion is part of women's health care. It is a common experience. One out of four women will have an abortion. Um, and uh, inquiring into the reasons why people get abortion um, is just a veiled attempt to question uh, question the uh, integrity of the decision um, and the and the right to make that decision. Um, it's also, I think, a way to signal and message uh, that there are uh, that there um, are uh, uh, reasons that are inappropriate why women would seek abortion. Um, if a woman needs abortion. Uh, needs an abortion, uh, she should be able to access that when she needs it. Um, but oftentimes, uh, you hear this uh, this um, a trope by opponents that um, abortion should be illegal except in these uh, certain circumstances. Um, even though th they have certainly been more bold lately, those are often articulated as uh, incest, uh, in cases of incest, in cases of um, rape in cases where um, uh, somehow uh, when you question it, um, you know, this doesn't necessarily become about uh, the question of when life begins, but how morally culpable uh, the person is who is seeking the abortion. Um, and that's something that we really need to uh, need to unpack for people. Let me ask you about, there was a concurrence in the Indiana case, the Box v. Planned Parenthood case, a concurrence by uh, Justice Thomas that uh, actually was, was longer than the decision. It went into a lot of issues that, uh, that I think uh, Justice Thomas is, uh, you know, portending for the future. Uh, he talked about eugenics. He talked about um, birth control. Um, what do you make of the uh, ar the arguments that were made by Justice Thomas in the concurrence uh, of that decision? And is does that you know is he relaying some argument that's going to be made in the future? Um. So, again, I think. Uh, Justice Thomas uh, has uh, has made his position on this issue uh, clear over the years. Um, I think that, uh, you know, in a way, um, equating forms of birth control with uh, abortion 
um, is just another way to uh, make uh, medically inaccurate uh, decisions uh, about um, the reach of uh, these bans. Um, and I, while uh, Justice Thomas's uh, concurrence certainly signals uh, that uh, he uh, would not would not uh, would not support uh, the right in um, in future decisions. I think it's also uh, cloaked in um, in language that is inflammatory around eugenics um, uh, and uh, language that I, I think is essentially meant to distract from uh, the issue. Yes, well, it it certainly uh, it certainly does because I mean Justice Thomas and his concurrence. I mean he raised a very serious uh, racial issue uh, when he when he brought up this uh, eugenics uh, portion, which is you know people being selective about uh, about who is born, uh, whether it be by gender or race or or otherwise. And he was uh, inferring there that, you know, these uh, abo- uh, permitting abortion is somehow uh, permitting some sort of winnowing of uh, the races, uh, which was just the whole concept of what he was talking about seems so far afield. Uh, but it was really, uh, I think, quite, quite shocking and disturbing. Which is also quite offensive, I think, to um, organizations that actively work to expand access to reproductive health care services for communities and women of color. Um, it, you know, it, it, when there was a there was a federal bill that was being considered to uh, to uh, do something similar along the lines of these reason bans. Um, groups of uh, organizations uh, that represent communities of color came out in force uh, to say that uh, reducing access to reproductive health care uh, is not uh, in line with taking steps toward uh, ensuring that people can access the care that they need. Um, Certainly in this country, we are uh, starting to really look at the, the maternal mortality rates and the, the crisis uh, that is happening. And, um, you know, the United States has one of the, the highest maternal mortality rates for uh, developed countries. Um, and that is in large part because people don't have access to health care. Um, and reducing people's access to healthcare uh, is not the solution. Uh, it, and when we're talking about maternal mortality rates, we're we're talking about um, also just the 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 um, horrifying disparate impact on um, on women of color um, who have uh, largely um, a more difficult time. Uh, accessing, um, accessing healthcare. Let me ask you: Are there are there any cases that are making their way through the courts that you think might have a, a shot at uh, having cert granted for the Supreme Court that we should keep our eye on? 
that are moving forward? Well, as I um, started to discuss earlier, the the court in February put a temporary day on a Louisiana law, uh, and that law required admitting privileges for abortion providers at hospitals, which are often impossible to secure. Um, the Fifth Circuit um, upheld that law, and the Supreme Court granted that temporary stay. Um, but the court may very well hear that case in the next term. Um, and this this law is almost identical uh, to the law that was struck down in whole women's case whole women's health as an as an undue burden on on women's ability to access abortion. Um, so it is very telling that um, uh, the court, um, the court may may hear that case uh, in the next term. Um, it would also be very disturbing if um, they uh, did not hear the case and they upheld uh, the Fifth Circuit um, the Fifth Circuit's uh, decision upholding that law. I think signaling um, certainly that the court is moving in a different direction, um, but also essentially leaving Louisiana. Um, without uh, without uh, any access to abortion providers. There's been some talk, unfortunately, it, it includes some talk by uh, our president, that there's some states that permit a woman to decide whether to have, uh, to, to, uh, to kill the child after they're, after they're born. Um, there seems to be, there's no truth to that. But where does this, where does this come from? Where does that, where does that come from? I think that this is an effort again to stigmatize and malign abortion care, um, in equating it with uh, murder and infanticide. Um, it, once a person is born and alive, uh, they receive all of the protections of uh, the human rights law, the civil rights law. Um, and, and certainly uh, a, a duty by the provider to, um, to, uh, to care for, the, for that person. Um, but I think, again, this is an effort to um, uh, malign abortion care. Um, and it unfortunately has real-life consequences on the people uh, who need uh, abortion care later in pregnancy. Now, obviously, even if uh, the state the road decision were either overturned or chipped back, the states could still do what uh, what they wanted to uh, permit uh, abortion. And New York State just recently took some steps regarding the Reproductive Health Act. Tell us what the Reproductive Health Act is and and why it's so important. Absolutely, I, I would love to give a little bit of background too. Sure. Um, New York, like uh, many states across the country, uh, criminalized abortion in the 1800s, except when a woman's life was at risk. Um, and it, it wasn't really until the mid-20th century, um, the, the 1950s, that uh, public health and, and gender equity ads started to question the, the wisdom of criminalizing abortion. Um, as we now know very well uh, from numerous studies, 
women will find ways to end pregnancies regardless of the legal landscape or the penalties. So criminalizing abortion doesn't actually reduce the number of abortions. It just makes abortion less safe for women. Um, and in response to that conversation, and actually a, a really extensive report that was put together by Governor Rockefeller um, in the late 60s, uh, the, the New York legislature passed legislation that, that carved out an exception to the crime of abortion uh, called justifiable abortion. Um, and uh, justifiable abortion was defined as abortion 24 weeks from the commencement of pregnancy by a duly licensed physician. And after that point, when a woman's life was at risk. And that definition didn't reflect baseline constitutional protections. Um, three years after New York amended its law in 1973, the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade. And as I discussed earlier, that that decision and the case law upholding it stands for the principle that that women have a fundamental right to abortion and that states cannot prohibit abortion uh, throughout pregnancy when a fetus is not viable or when a woman's life or health is at risk. So um, after 1973, um, access in New York uh, was uh, certainly uh, diminished in circumstances where the law did not reflect those baseline uh, provisions. Um, because abortion was in the penal code, uh, providers and hospital risk management ha had been hesitant uh, to provide care beyond the law's stated boundaries, um, regardless of whether that care was constitutionally protected. And that meant that despite the protections of Roe v. Wade, um, people who needed care later in pregnancy were essentially being sent out of state uh, if they could even afford to travel and, and pay for that care. Um, another major barrier to access in the law was the physician-only language. Um, when the law was passed, uh, physicians were the only providers that uh, could uh, provide abortion. They were the only uh, providers in the law that could practice medicine. Um, but since then, various healthcare professionals called advanced practice clinicians have been established under the law and um, are totally competent to prescribe and provide safe abortion care. And advanced practice clinicians, a, a, what's known as APCs, are, are really critical um, to uh, they're really a critical point of access in uh, more rural areas and for communities that have been historically disconnected from physicians, um, but were essentially discouraged from providing care under our old law. Um, but in uh, January of this year, uh, the, the legislature passed and the governor signed the Reproductive Health Act, and the Reproductive Health Act addressed these barriers. Uh, in, in really three ways. First, uh, the, the Reproductive Health Act removed abortion from the homicide code. Uh, abortion is not a crime. It is health care, uh, and it is not something that should be regulated in our homicide code. Um, second, the REHA put an affirmative measure in our public health law that reflected the baseline constitutional protections uh, of Roe so that a provider can provide abortion after 24 weeks from the, from the commencement of pregnancy 
if the fetus is not viable or in cases where the, the woman's health or life is at risk. Um, and um, third, the, the Reproductive Health Act removed that physician-only language and clarified that advanced practice clinicians uh, may provide abortion care so long as it's within uh, their scope of practice. Uh, the RHA was a major victory. Um, it is something that I think aligns very well with New York stated values of uh, equality. Um, and uh, it, it, we certainly have more work to do, but I think it was uh, signaling that New York is uh, moving in the right direction. So uh, so the upshot is, regardless of what happens at the Supreme Court, whether there's an overturn or a chipping away, that uh, these protections for a woman's choice will remain uh, in place in New York regardless. That's absolutely right. So, uh, Catherine Bodie, thank you very much for enlightening us on this uh, important and serious issue. Uh, we appreciate your being here on Miranda Warnings. Although this is a very serious uh, issue, we do have uh, a lighthearted feature on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie. Is there something uh, in that realm that you'd like to share with us? So it's a, it's a tricky time of year to ask that question. I haven't picked up a good book in, in months, and my consumption of media has been limited of late because of the, the legislative session and all of the activity that's happening across the country. Um, but uh, perhaps uh, what you're trying to, to get at is um, how how I essentially feed my, my spirit and my intellect. Um, I'm a yoga practitioner. I enjoy going to museums and, and being in nature. I listen to music and podcasts, uh, podcasts about what's happening in the world, but also podcasts that, that make me think about life from a new perspective. Um, I, the New York legislative session ends this month and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to pick up a, a good juicy novel this summer. Um, fiction, fiction, of course. <laughs> so you mentioned podcasts and so other than Miranda warnings, uh, what other podcasts do you listen to? Oh, um, I really enjoy, uh, it, to, to get, uh, good commentary on, um, on how our media, uh, uh, is covering things I really enjoy on the media. Um, I also enjoy, um, on being with Krista Tippett. Uh, those are, uh, two of, two of the ones that are top on my list. Wonderful. Uh, Catherine Bodie, thank you so much for being with us. Senior policy counsel at the New York civil liberties union. Catherine, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Miranda warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISVA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.